The scripture reading this morning is taken from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 17, and also from uh, verses 26 and 27, and from Acts chapter 13, verses 21 through 23. So a lot to capture here. Uh, From 2 Samuel, in the spring of the year, when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on the couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And from Acts chapter 13, this is Paul uh, speaking to the church in Antioch. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Robbie. Again, my name is Gray. Glad to be with you this morning. Glad to be looking at uh, the Word of God together. We're in a series, mostly in 2 Samuel, um, but we'll go into the New Testament as well. We're looking at the time in Israel's history when they had kings, the three main kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and then we'll look at Jesus the last week. This is our Advent series, and the whole idea is that from the start of of the period of the judges, when there was a judge in Israel and there was no king, but then Israel asked for a king all the way to when Jesus comes, all the really the rest of the scriptures are obsessed with this question, who is the king? Which king should we be looking for? Will this be the king that reigns forever? And of course, what we're going to see is that none of the kings that Israel had, that they ever had, were the ones who were totally righteous, that were the kings that would reign forever. And so we're looking today at perhaps the one that comes the closest, David. King David is the model of kingship. He is the man after God's own heart. He is the king that led Israel at the peak of their influence in the world, at the peak of their prosperity. He reigned with righteousness. The Bible goes out of its way to talk about this king as being righteous and just and faithful and kind. And as we see in the passage today, deeply, deeply flawed. The king, David, who is the model, will not be the king that we need to look to for our hope. I want to talk today about the problem we have with heroes. And we do have a problem with heroes. I think in our culture, maybe this is reflective of uh, the, the modern moment that we're in where we tend to judge all past uh, generations. That's kind of an impulse that we have. Uh, but I think it's a human problem too, the, the human desire to place our hope in some thing or some person, to have some hero. And when heroes fall which is the hard passage that we have before us today, we, we tend to do one of two things with our problem with heroes. We tend to either downplay their weaknesses. So if you have a hero then, and you find out something about them that maybe is a black mark on their reputation, you might be tempted to downplay those weaknesses and, and say, let's just focus on all of the good things. The other impulse that we have that's very prevalent today is to totally tear down heroes and to deny that they had any good whatsoever and to tear down any kind of influence. And so we look at past heroes and we immediately want to discredit them. And so I'm not sure which impulse you have, and maybe it's different with different heroes, but a couple of examples from my life, heroes that I have fallen, uh, followed, (laughs) maybe uh, that was unintentional, have fallen. Two heroes, and I just chose these heroes because they have the same name, Martin Luther and Martin Luther King. Two heroes. Maybe they're heroes of yours. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, Reformation. Many of you know the story that the church is corrupt, and, um, and there's this great Protestant Reformation where um, the people of God return to the Scriptures 
Martin Luther is a hero, nailing 95 theses to the wall uh, of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Powerful preacher, powerful theologian, powerful leader, Bible translator, amazing man of God. A hero. This church wouldn't exist here in some ways, historically speaking, without this Reformation. And this is the stream that we find ourselves in. Martin Luther is a hero. And later in life, Martin Luther wrote something very embarrassing on the church. Some of you probably don't even know about this. He wrote a tract called Jews and Their Lives and Their Lies. I read it once. That was enough. It's full of horrible things, advocating for positions against the Jewish people. He'd had some bad experiences, and Martin Luther was nothing if not impetuous with his feelings, and he was at once once welcoming to the Jewish community, hoping that they would turn to Christ. But later in his life, he became very angry with them. And the things that he wrote are embarrassing, hard. What should we do with a hero who looks like that? Should we not celebrate the Reformation? Should we tear down his image? Maybe we should just blush over that. And just talk about the 95 Theses again. Modern day hero, relatively speaking, Martin Luther King, Jr., great civil rights leader. I read letter from the Birmingham jail uh, that Martin Luther King wrote probably about once a year. It's an amazing piece of writing. It's cogent, it's beautiful, it's convicting. Of course, his influence on America is undeniable in the civil rights movement. And yet, as we've seen recently, and many movies have captured and uh, reports have been made about his unfaithfulness to his wife over and over again, a serial adulterer. What are we to do with a hero that has fallen like this? Blush over it? Or perhaps... We just want to tear him down. I want to tell us this morning that the Bible wrestles with this tension of heroes. It gives us a look at all of the heroes of the Bible, and there are heroes. There's been popular at times to say, well, the Bible doesn't really have heroes. It has only anti-heroes, but that's not true. We're given models of faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. This is a great Uh, chapter of the faithfulness of God's people by faith. All of these people, God gave them faith and they had faith to imitate. And David is in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He is worthy of imitation. At the same time, the Bible goes out of its way to highlight the significant sins, shortcomings, failures of God's people. There is no one save one or two people that are mentioned in passing, that is completely unblemished when we look at the record of the Bible's history. It's almost painful to read 2 Samuel 11, this really slow unfolding story. If you've been reading the book of 2 Samuel before this, it's a lot of quick action. It's a lot of movement here, and then they fought the Ammonites there, and then they did this and this and this, and it's very quick. And then we get two long chapters, which we only read a brief portion of, painfully, slowly 
unfolding the story of David's unfaithfulness. So the Bible captures this tension, this man, after God's own heart, the most faithful king of Israel, also gives us an account of stunning unfaithfulness. Here's what I think is true about us. We're always looking for trustworthy heroes in whom we can place our hope. That is part of the human endeavor, to look for models, to look for heroes. But what do we do about the ones that embarrass us? What do we do with David, who is this record of mixed faithfulness? I want us to see first that he had a faithful heart. He did an unfaithful act, and then that we're going to look at a more faithful promise. First, a faithful heart. The primary thing that we know about David, truly, in almost every section of Scripture that he has talked about in, is that he is a man after God's own heart. Look at Acts chapter 13, which is a summary of a couple of places in the Old Testament. But it says this, In verse 22, and when they had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Two things in this this passage highlights about David's heart, that he had a heart like God and that he was obedient. He had a God-like heart. The story of David is, the one, is someone whose whole being was animated by God. Think about the stories that we know about David, that he fought Goliath. Why did he fight Goliath? Because Goliath was blaspheming the name of God. His heart was after God's heart, so much so that to hear blasphemy caused him to fight, and zeal emerged from his heart. Think about the stories that we have on more than one occasion of David Maybe you don't know these stories in the Old Testament, but there are several times where David could have taken the life of Saul, his rival, the first king of Israel. David had already been promised the throne. He could have taken the throne for himself. He could have killed Saul on more than one occasion, but he did not because he had such respect for God's anointed king. Where did that come from? It came from a heart that was devoted to God, so much so that he would not just take something that had already been promised to him, just just take it into my own hands for a moment. He didn't seek an advantage. What else do we know about David? He had a shepherd's heart, which means that he was tender towards the sheep and fierce towards the enemy, the predators of the sheep, which is, of course, the primary metaphor for Jesus Christ and for the shepherd's of Israel, the leaders of Israel, for pastors today, that we would be tenacious, loving, and also fighting against the predators of God's people. He carried that shepherd heart with him into leadership in Israel. He loved the people, and he protected them from God's enemies. David was also a worshiper. He wrote songs and poems to God that we still sing today. For the people of God, he danced before Israel in worship of the Lord. He cherished the Ark of the Covenant, this place where God's presence dwelled. He he cherished it. 
He had a godlike heart. He also was obedient. That's what it says here in Acts, 20, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. He will do all my will. David, on the whole, succeeded where Saul failed. We looked last week, Eric preached on Saul, the first king, who was disobedient, who thought, what can I get away with? And then therefore disobeyed the Lord and walked away from him. The, the overall trajectory of David's life was the opposite of that, that he sought God's will. Where Saul failed, he succeeded. He listened to other people who gave him advice. At various times, David's anger was riled up, and, and then he would be told, this is not the Lord's will, and he would then repent and walk away from what he was going to do. He was, had a godlike heart, and on the whole, his life was filled with obedience. This is the hero that we're given in the Scriptures, David, the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart who will do all his will. He had a faithful heart, but as we've said in these chapters here in 2 Samuel, he committed an unfaithful act. Series of acts, really. And we come to this story that's so hard and so embarrassing, really, let's be honest, to read about this king after God's own heart. It's a story of royal intrigue. It has everything you need for that. Sex, scandal, cover-up, violence. But for all that, it's not a psychological account. There are so many questions that are left unanswered in this story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. There's so much mystery. How was David feeling? What, what was he trying to do? What was Bathsheba's state of mind? What was the history between he and Uriah? Was this a story of revenge in some kind of way? Was it a, a story of... of um, David snuffing out a rival to him. We don't know hardly any of the details of why this came about, but we do know that it is a story of David's unfaithfulness. That is really the focus of the entire chapter, is how unfaithful David is. He was unfaithful in at least three ways. First way is adultery. You see... This story beginning to unfold in verse 1. In the spring of that year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So the, the Israelites are off to war, but David stays home. It's common to say that this is David's first mistake, or maybe it's his first sin was that he stayed behind. But that's not necessarily the case. Kings didn't have to fight in every single war. This is not actually the first battle that he has sat out of before. And so we don't know if this was really, uh, we, we can't make too much of him being at home except to say that it sets the stage for this unfaithfulness. And he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And from there, he makes inquiries about her. He asks, who is this? And that's really where, in many ways, it gets interesting because we don't actually know what David was after in this story. It's not a psychological account. We are told that Bathsheba is very beautiful. And so certainly this is a story probably of lust, 
but he also is interested in her because she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It's after he finds out her identity that he sends for her. And so the rest of the story really is this chess match between David and Uriah. And so perhaps there is something more there. Perhaps Uriah was a rival to David. And so we don't know if primarily David was acting lustfully, if he was acting manipulatively. But either way, the sin is the same. It's adultery. It's the breaking of the seventh commandment. The commandments that he knows so well, the man after God's own heart knows the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, knows the tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. This is how he breaks it in verse 4, very hard to read. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Do you notice the emphasis on the actions? He sent, he took, he lay. This is what he did. He sent for her. He had opportunities, in other words, to turn back. He took, we talked about that the first week of this series. What are the kings going to do? Samuel warns the people of Israel when they say, you shall make us a king. He says, God tells him, you shall solemnly warn the people what the kings will do. They will take, and they will take, and they will take. And that word is repeated over and over and over again. And here it is again. The king takes what is not his. He lay, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so we see here, even though this narrator doesn't give us a psychological account, he does at times bring us some really cold ironies throughout this story. So we get this detail that Bathsheba is cleansing herself from her uncleanliness. She is following the law, purifying herself. And yet the first cold irony that we see is that David, after she has become, made herself pure, makes her impure with his actions. The second sin is the sin of control as David tries to control the situation. And here the key word is send. Look at verse 6 with me. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And the story goes on from there. Send, 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 sent, sent, sent. Twelve times in this passage. David is sending or receiving people. This is a big plot. This is a lot going on. There are attempts here at controlling and managing the situation. David is frustrated at first with his attempts to control the situation. He can't get Uriah to do what he wants him to do. What does he want him to do? He wants him to come home and be with his wife. Why does he want that? Well, there's at least two possibilities. It's common to think what what David was thinking is that he wanted Uriah to go home to his wife so that the child that is born would be associated with Uriah, and so that there's a cover-up of this child being born. But it could be something more than that. It could be more sinister even than that. 
Could be that he wants him to go home so that he would break the law of the army. And then David would have a pretext to arrest and kill Uriah for breaking the law. It was against the law for soldiers to come home in the time of war. Which is quite possibly what was going on here as David encourages him, gives him this command, go to your house. If you go home, though, he breaks military code. He can be court-martialed. He can be sentenced to die. But he, doesn't, he refuses to do it. He tells him to go home to his house the first time. He refuses to do it. The second time, he refuses as well. David even makes him drunk. In verse 13, And David invited him, and he ate in his presence on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. As one writer said, talking about a second cold irony here, Uriah is more faithful drunk than David is sober. See, the cold irony is, normally, disobedience to the king is unfaithfulness. But Uriah is more faithful to the covenants than to David. He has made a covenant with the army. He's made a covenant to the Ark of the Covenant. That's what he talks about. He says, look, I can't do this. When David says, why are you not going to your house? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the Ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. They're in tents right now. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? He's made covenants to the army, to the Ark and to his commander, and he is not breaking his covenants while David has broken his. The second cold irony. The third thing that David does wrong, of course, is that he this premeditated murder. And this is another cold irony. This one is ice cold. He sends the death sentence of Uriah by the hand of Uriah. You see in verse 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Joab more or less does what David says. He perhaps makes it a little less obvious. We didn't read that portion, but basically that's what happens. Joab puts him where the fighting is the hardest, and Uriah dies. David is able to control the situation, at least from the outside. And this seems to be the close of the account. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. Notice how she's still called there the wife of Uriah. She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. There's that word again. He sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. This is what seemingly is the end of the story. The murder has happened. No one knows. We, st- we don't know if Bathsheba knows. The story has been covered up. The problem seemingly solved. These kind of cruel ironies are not things that we can keep hidden for forever. I remember reading a story about German, um, a German soldier, a German marshal, 
named Erwin Rommel. And in 1944, this was in World War II, he was a war hero in Germany, and so he was very popular, but he was implicated in a plot to kill, assassinate Hitler. When they discovered this about one of their heroes, they, they had a conundrum. What do we do? We can't kill one of our heroes, openly at least. So instead of dying a traitor, what they did is made a deal with him. They told him, you can drink poison and your family will be spared. And so he took the deal. He drank the poison and they left his family alone. They were told, the family was told that he had died of a cerebral embolism. But it was cold what they did, and even what they did after. Hitler himself sent a wire to the family saying, please accept my sincerest sympathy for the heavy loss that you have suffered. Hermann Gowring, the, uh, another official in the Air Force in Germany, said this to the family, your husband's death has deeply touched me. But everything had been planned out. No one seemingly was the wiser, but of course I'm telling the story right now. We're all the wiser because history judges that situation. And what's going to happen next is that God judges this cruelty. We expect in some ways to hear stories, like I just said, about Nazi Germany, but we don't expect to hear it about David, the man after God's own heart, about Israel, God's chosen people. What are we supposed to think? Can it just go on like this? Can we keep David enthroned as a hero? Well, hear the last line of the passage, which is devastating. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's five words in Hebrew, devastating. Literally, it says this but wicked or ill. But ill was the thing done in the eyes of Yahweh. It was wicked. It literally says, in his eyes. A final irony to close out the passage. What David saw broke the covenant. What God saw, though, gives the last word. David saw her in other words, but God saw him. The eyes of the Lord saw. And so we have a hero with a stain. And this stain is going to stay with him throughout the rest of the scriptures. In fact, if you know the book of uh, Kings and Chronicles later, the story of the kings, they're often going to be compared to David, whether they were faithful or not. But there's always this little twinge. Let me give you an example. First Kings 15, verse 5, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. This stain is going to stay with him. And so David can still be a model of faith, but he cannot be the trustworthy hero where we can place all of our hope. Because what the human heart wants is a truly faithful king. And to look for a faithful king, we'll have to look for another. Thankfully, God gives us a more faithful promise and a more faithful king. 
Look how Acts chapter 13, verse 22 and 23 put this up for us. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. The verse couldn't end with just David doing all of my will because there's that except but in the matter of Uriah Bathsheba. But of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. David can continue to be a hero, but he cannot be a Savior. Because we need a king who is faithful in every single way, with no lapses, with no black stains. And so the hero that we need, as the Bible tells us this story, is great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, who was faithful in every single way. He was pure in heart. He was a faithful friend. He was faithful to the Father's will. He was faithful to his task of redemption to come and live a life and die a death and be raised from the dead. There is no black mark on the reputation of King Jesus. In fact, he is pictured for us as the only worthy one. I love Revelation chapter 5, which says this. Let me read it to you in the first five verses. Then I saw at the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This is John's vision. And he says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? To open the scroll and break its seals, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Hear this, the root of Jesse, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is only one faithful, worthy king. It is Jesus Christ, who is the root of David, not David himself, At the end of the day, David was more faithful than most in most areas of his life. We don't tear him down only. We believe what the Bible says about his faithfulness. We admire his heart. We model our lives after him. We sing his psalms. We model his courage and zeal for the Lord. But we cannot hope in him. We cannot hope in Martin Luther. We cannot hope in Martin Luther King Jr. We cannot hope in any human hero. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the King. How do we have that hope? As we close today, I want us to look at how we do that. It's by using our eyes. As the passage has highlighted, David used his eyes in unfaithfulness. God, though, saw. What do we do? Well, we look away and we look toward We look away from any other source of faithfulness. That is repentance. And here, 
David is actually a model. He is a model of repentance. David repented of this sin. He turned from it. He confessed it, and it was forgiven. As the story unfolds, David is found out by the prophet Nathan. He confesses his sin to the Lord, and he is forgiven. And we need to pause here for a second and say that there is so much hope there for any one of us. What if you are a big sinner? I know we all are. I know that every sin separates us from God. I know that all sin matters, but I'm speaking to the person this morning who feels trapped, a person who is ashamed, a person who knows they've messed up in a big way, and it doesn't have to be right now. It could be something that happened in your past. It could be something that's happening right now, maybe something that you're toying with doing, but you've messed up in a big way. Do you know that the scripture says that you can be a man or woman after God's own heart? Even when you are a big sinner, it has to be true because it was true of David. And that happens through repentance, looking away, turning away from what you are hoping in, thinking is good. From following any other person or thing, even if it's good, it will not be good enough. Because nothing is unstained except Jesus Christ. Hear me, though, that repentance doesn't mean that there is no consequence. That's not what repentance is. David suffered huge consequences. Israel, the people of God, suffered huge consequences for this stain. The child dies. The child gets to be with the Lord. The child is in a good place, David says later, I will, I will go to him. In his grief, he says, I will go to this child. This child is with the Lord, but the child dies for the rest of his life. David will know that he has not only wronged Bathsheba, which he did. He's not only wronged Uriah the Hittite, which he did. He's not only wronged God himself, which he did. Against you and you alone have I sinned, he says in Psalm 51. But he has also sinned against a baby boy. God also says that because of this, the sword will not pass from your house. There will be strife and fighting for the rest of your family, David. It will not stop. This becomes true. Solomon starts out well. We're going to talk about next week. Then he goes astray. And David's grandsons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, are going to literally split the kingdom. The unfaithfulness of this king will mean eventually war and exile for the people of God. This is it. This is the tipping point. This is, everything's been going up. David has secured peace in the nations. David has plans for a temple. There is, this is the high point of Israel's influence in the world, wealth, peace, and it just goes downhill from here because of David. The consequences are huge. Repentance doesn't mean that there is no consequences, but hear this. It does mean that your heart can be after God's again because David returned to the Lord even after this large sin. So we look away, we repent, but we also look toward King Jesus. He is the only one worthy. This means first and foremost that we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that he is the only hero worthy of our hope. 
We believe that he is the path, the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the source of good. And when you know that, you, your life begins to change. You stop putting so much emphasis, so much hope in other things, even if they are good things. You stop putting so much security in people, in careers, in money, in having this, a perfect family. You, you learn to, to bring it back, say, this is good, but it's not going to last and it's not going to be enough. And you keep returning back to Jesus, which is the work of the Advent season that we are, as we just sang earlier, having Christ born in our hearts again today. That's what we pray, that we would return to this newborn king and see him as the only source of good. He is the only truly faithful place to put your hope. Let's pray.